Mm, scotchy, scotchy, scotchy. Yeah. I love scotch. What? I'm sorry? Oh, not those two guys again. Are you serious? Oh, for All right, hold on, hold on. <clears throat> mm. It's the happiest time of the year, and that's why it gives me great joy to uh, follow this court-ordered settlement and introduce a brand new episode of Eureka Cast Now, a show that was somehow declared illegal in Kazakhstan. Is that right? Uh, tonight, our intrepid reporters Kai Hubris and Rowan Metalark have uncovered a startling secret history of the Midwestern town so joyful that it just could not live. <laughs> yes, this jolly feel-good story is... What? They all died. They all died horribly? Well, on with the show, as we say here. And before I forget, the Circuit Court of Appeals in Cook County has mandated that we give something called the Right of Reply to the Energy Workers Guild of America. Seems those lovable little scams crossed the line into slander a few months ago, and, well, I'd like to introduce someone named Cynthia Featherstrong. Take it away, Cynthia. The Energy Workers Guild of America disagrees in the strongest possible terms with the portrayal of our field and profession on Eureka Cast Now. The hosts, Kai Hubris and Rowan Meadowlark, have continually denigrated and degraded a fine, age-old profession that has helped thousands. Despite the information previously presented on this program, distance Reiki has been found to be highly efficacious. When used with the proper gong techniques, energy healing can transform the sallow, unhealthy American body into something Aryan and proper. Which is why the Guild today has issued a death order against Kai and Rowan, and our healers have been told to shoot on sight. We look forward to peeling their scrawny Whoa, 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 hey, away. that went off the rails pretty quickly, didn't it? <laughs> well, with that little legal matter out of the way, here is the Scouring of Santa Claus, a Eureka Cast Now special. It's a warm summer day in Santa Claus. In the small southern Indiana town, population 2,670, the locals go about their lives, driving to work in the neighboring city or setting pies out on window sills to tempt the passing vagabonds. Children gather hand in hand at one of the many holiday attractions scattered throughout the community, idly wasting the hours away, wrapped in the delicate blanket of youth and fresh-faced naivete. However, Underneath the rolling waves of the holiday world and surfing safari combination theme and water park lies the compacted wreckage of one of the most horrific industrial disasters in United States history. Over 200 men, women, children, and tourists met a grisly end Christmas Eve of 1932. The carnage was widespread and grotesque as detailed by first-hand accounts. The smoke was overwhelming. I, I stumbled out of the room and stepped on something that I thought was an ornament. But I looked down, and it was the burnt skull of my husband. After the first wave hit, we all tried to grab on for dear life. But the caramel was too sticky, and I... I saw Henry get swept away. He never even particularly cared for caramel. He was dragged by the train. We tried to tell him to cut himself free, but the bells, the bells were jingling too loud. 
While the death toll and scope of human misery has long been established, it is only now that historians have the technology to fully recreate the series of events that led to the largest holiday-themed industrial disaster in recorded history. Some parts of the story have never been told, and tonight, we use the latest developments in ground-penetrating radar, magnetic core analysis, and cutting-edge simulations provided by Tech Brothers Disaster Labs to give you, the listener, the opportunity to hear for the first time ever the true and unedited sequence of events on that fateful night. In this program, you will learn about every oversight, every mistake, and every tragic detail that led to the living nightmare so few would survive. Paired with never-before-heard first-hand accounts read by voice actors and an exclusive interview with a survivor of the tragedy, tonight in a special AWCY-FM documentary event, The Scouring of Santa Claus. The town that would be known as Santa Claus got its start as an unincorporated plot of land in southwest Indiana, sandwiched between the Ohio River and what would eventually be named Kentucky. Originally founded as Santa Fe in 1854, the name was ultimately changed at the behest of the post office department due to the existence of a second previously established Santa Fe in the same state. Santa Claus would be selected after a series of often violent town meetings as reported by the October 13, 1855 issue of the Santa Singer. It was with great consternation and no shortage of vitriol that another council meeting has ended with no progress on the issue of our town's name. Should it prove that Councilman Tramsenth does not recover from the blows he suffered in this last debate, the chance that we may not have quorum to settle the discussion seems likely. With the name chosen after a great deal of controversy, the town would eventually settle into a humble agrarian peace. Little recorded history exists of this town during this brief period, as many historians believe it was not interesting enough to be written down. That would all change in 1886, when elderly Union Colonel Cornelius Shepard Kane, nicknamed Bolo by his troops for his rotund Bolo Jelly midsection, settled on a small, undeveloped segment of the town for construction of a second home away from the hustle and bustle of Fort Wayne. This palatial estate, dubbed the Candy Castle for its evocative gingerbread style, quickly became known for the lavish Christmas parties Cornelius Kane would throw each year. These events were noteworthy at the time for not just being an exclusive soiree for the rich and powerful associates of the colonel, but being open to the average townsfolk. From a letter to an anonymous rail baron sent by Cornelius in 1889, I understand your trepidation in attending my gala given the attendees. I too was leery of the unwashed, ashy-faced mingling uninhabited with the estate. Rest assured, however, that these simple folk have innate honesty to them by dint of their naive upbringing and general unfamiliarity with the workings of the wider world. They're good people, despite what their poverty might lead you to believe, and well, they are much more pliable in matters of labor when appeased by these gestures. There is, after all, nothing less jolly than the help being dour as you sip your brandy on a cold winter's eve. 
These parties did more than cement Cornelius Kane's social standing. They slowly became the focal point of the retired officer's attention. The events began to expand in scope and duration from one evening to 12 days to a month and a half starting in late November and finally to the entire year. By 1895, the now septuagenarian Cain had converted his estate and large swaths of the surrounding town into a vision of yuletide cheer never before and perhaps never since seen. Using considerable riches and generous donations from his wealthy acquaintances, the native deciduous forests of the town were raised and planted with Douglas firs, which at the time were known as the Gentleman's Pine. Further development would see dirt roads cobbled, homes given chimneys or demolished and rebuilt to have chimneys, and even the one-room local schoolhouse was converted into a one-room child-operated toy workshop. By the turn of the 20th century, nearly 65% of the entire population of Santa Claus was employed by the Kane family and their newly minted company, Union Cheer hired to maintain the rapidly growing attraction. Fueled by the increased availability of the automobile among the Midwestern child millionaires of that era, slipping down to Santa became a common thing to hear about one's weekend plans. Slipping over to Santa Claus in Daddy's Oldsmobile Santa's got a great machine that runs on burning steel. This increasing monopolization of the growing tourist town did not go unopposed by those who lived in the community, however. Dissatisfaction spread among some townsfolk who slowly but surely began accumulating a list of grudges. Town meetings records from the time give us a peek at these concerns. Complaints about noise from exhibits scaring livestock, the perceived misuse of the local children's time in the workshop, and a thick choking smog that would occasionally descend upon the town from the nearby industrial burn pit. Ultimately, this would reach a boiling point in the Santa Claus mayoral elections of 1904, when incumbent and longtime resident of the town, Jeremiah Stonewell, narrowly lost to Bolo's second and youngest son, Leslie Joseph Everett Kane, who had just turned eight years old a month prior. The election, dogged by controversy from the very start, was proof enough to some members of the community that Union Cheer had gained far too much power in the town. Angry supporters of Stonewall rioted throughout the streets, smashing the public phonographs that played festive music throughout the town in what would later be known as the Night of Silence. In spite of this, and other scattered acts of violence, the boy mayor would ultimately prove wildly popular among the townsfolk, his chubby cheeks and precocious nature warming the hearts of even his most strident detractors. Eventually, and without much fanfare, it became commonly accepted that the municipal government was an arm of the company that kept the town employed, as one contemporary editorialist opined. Should a child desire to have his buttermilk and biscuits eaten by St. Nick, I recommend he bring it to the courthouse, wherein he might more easily find Santa's mouth agape. Still, Life went on in Santa Claus, and the young Leslie Kane handily won re-election in 1908 and again in 1912. 
over that period of time, Union Cheer expanded not only its tourism facilities, but a new unexplored sector, heavy manufacturing. The schoolhouse turned workshop had long produced small trinkets and baubles for the visitors who had passed through, but a chance reunion on the part of Cornelius Bolo Kane would change the course and ultimately the physical landscape of Santa Claus, Indiana, forever. To discuss this crucial turn point in our story, we reached out to Christmas historian Jerry Schmendrick. So what we saw happen in Santa Claus in the early 20th century, it all started back in 1893 at the Columbian Exhibition. And you know, it needs to be said a lot of super epic stuff was getting premiered at this event. World's Fairs, these were the E3s of their time, and people would come from all over the world to see what they could expect to roll out in the coming years. We're talking things like the Ferris wheel, cream of wheat, even the Pledge of Allegiance, hot, hot, hot commodities. This is where you went to see the future. And we have a firsthand account of Bolo Kane at the fairgrounds when he first laid eyes on the device that would turn Union Cheer into the titan it would become. Cornelius Kane would go on to write the following in his diary about the encounter. And there, in the cacophony of the midway and amongst the bright lights, I was greeted by the most peculiar device. A freestanding, four-wheeled apparatus with a humming steam engine, not unlike the French moving carriages so popular overseas. However, instead of a seat wherein a man or servant may sit, it was a glass box filled with some manner of expanded grain. As if all at once I detected the most tantalizing smell coming from the apparatus, and I beckoned to the family come investigate. A small man hailing from Illinois handed me a paper sack filled with this mystery confection and informed me that it was known along the East Coast as non-peril, but that he preferred the nomenclature popcorn. Even young Leslie, racked with the pressures of office, was transfixed by this elegant confection. Of all the delights of mind and body I have experienced in my time at this exhibition, it is this treat that my mind lingers on the longest. In 1885, Charles Creeters would invent the first ever commercially viable steam-powered popcorn popper. By the time of the Columbian Exhibition, he had refined this thing into a, a mobile cart that could continuously pop and serve and pop and serve and pop and serve this hot, delicious corn for hours at a time. It was kind of like an iPhone moment for the corn industry, really. He's the Steve Jobs of corn, this guy. And just like the iPhone did for Apple, the Creter Maze detonator launched C. Creters and Company into the business stratosphere. By 1910, when Union here was just beginning to lean into manufacturing. Creeters and Company had already established an office in Chicago and was riding on the success of their new electrically powered model, sort of making them the Tesla of their time. So you can just imagine, you have Bolo Kane, who might as well be Santa Claus incarnate, reaching out to see Creeters, that era's Tony Stark of Maze. And what are they talking about? What's, what's the plan here? Well, we don't have to guess. I have the telegram that set up that first meeting 
right here in front of me. Just, just listen to this. Two, Sea Creators, Chicago, Illinois. Hello and good tidings from Santa Claus and Union Shear. Stop. Been reading about your wonder machine. Stop. Looking to produce large volumes of popped corn for exciting venture. Stop. Garlands will never be the same. Stop. Will come visit soon if interested. Stop. These two intellectual and industrial behemoths, they would end up meeting daily for the next three months. They're in this samurai battle of wits and commerce uh, while they were ironing out these designs for a 750-gallon diesel-powered high-throughput popcorn popper that they nicknamed the Hellmouth. It was big, it ran extremely hot, and it gave the popcorn this strong flavor something that we now know is benzene. But man, did it pop a lot of frickin' corn. What you really need to understand about this moment of history was that popcorn was seen as a miracle of science. It was sort of like a cure for cancer or some sort of Frankenstein monster. It wasn't just a staple of the average American diet sort of like it is now. Uh, It became sort of like a status symbol. So you'd see all these high society folks of the time with their popcorn jewelry, their popcorn clothes, even their intricate and beautiful popcorn chandeliers that they would hang in their mansions and mausoleums. America was in the midst of a popcorn frenzy. So when this new type of garland hit the market, we're talking Avengers Endgame here. The Union Cheer Manufacturing Division would quickly see massive success with this new product. In the first year after the Popcorn Garland debuted, nearly 45 tons of dried corn was popped, strung onto threads by child-operated industrial needling machines, and wrapped into 75-yard spools. These spools would be distributed throughout the country, and this figure would double the following year and again the year after, due to the installation of a second Hellmouth popper. Increased production led to increased profits, and increased profits went back into Santa Claus. First, through the construction of a train track through the town, running from the grounds of the plant to the Ohio River, dubbed the Work Miss Express by the now preteen town mayor Leslie Kane. It was notable for being the first rail station in the town, as well as for the unique engineering choice of having train cars made entirely out of wood. Subsequent to this, new housing for the rapidly expanding workforce was constructed. Nicknamed the Elves' Quarters by the townspeople, these collection of low-slung cottages were established along the path of the Workmas Express to allow, in the words of Bolo Kane, give the workers as minimal an obstacle to arriving to their stations, as well as, quote, providing a perpetual reminders of that which provides their means of subsistence. Soon, a new vision for Santa Claus, Indiana, would make itself apparent. No longer content to merely surround himself with the trappings of the holidays, Cornelius Bolo Shepherd Kane would attempt to turn his small slice of the prairie into a yuletide utopia. By 1916, six years after the Garland assembly line became operational, Santa Claus was practically unrecognizable. 
where there had once been cornfields and wide cobbled streets, was now a dizzying array of sites, exhibits, and gaudy monuments to industry. A high-pressure candy crucible was constructed next, and after that, a 50-workman capacity wood shop capable of creating 200 scale models of the Workmas Express an hour. Even with the manufacturing arm rapidly becoming the focus of union cheer, tourism had only increased with the growing middle class. They had enough income to visit the hybrid factory town slash roadside attraction. Curious onlookers and their children would come to take a ride on the train, looking down onto the factory floor where workers would go about their routines, all while phonographs played pre-recorded songs and tours to the gawking visitors. Reindeer were imported and kept on an adjoining ranch where, for a small fee, rides could be taken around the facility. Another big draw, and something that also claims heritage to the 1893 Columbian Exhibition, was the presence of one of only four penny rollers in existence at that time. To outsiders, the town seemed like the victory of one man's vision to make a jolly and productive community, as one visitor effused on the back of a postcard sent from Santa Claus. My God, Jimmy, you should have been there. They had their own train. Another attraction was the Elder Kane himself. Bolo, in his custom-tailored Santa suit, could often be found walking the streets and manufacturing floors, greeting visitors and providing candy to the workers. At first, these tours were a family affair, with the Kane sons joining their father as he did the rounds. But as time went on, the amount of time Bolo spent in the suit kept increasing, and the duties of young Mayor Leslie Kane required more attention, so Cornelius Kane would then be left to do the rounds himself. This habit became so routine that many in the management of Union Cheer began worrying about Cornelius's mental well-being. Rapidly approaching 90 at this time, some in the company began whispering about nonsensical memos being written and quietly thrown away, a shareholder meetings devolving into writings of naughty and nice lists, and bouts of laughter that would seemingly appear out of nowhere and last for hours at a time. While the true cause of this mental instability has been debated by historians for decades, evidence newly collected by the AWCY-FM team can confirm that syphilis may have been a major factor. Regardless, times were good for Union Cheer and Santa Claus, Indiana, so the erratic behavior was dismissed and business kept going on as usual until April of 1917. April 6, 1917, America enters World War I, or, as it was known at the time, the Great War. However, this conflict was far from a great time. Hundreds of thousands of men were dead, large portions of Europe had been decimated, and for those still on the front lines, the need for all things holly and jolly was tantamount. Enter Union Cheer. As the young men of the United States were sent to fight, many families were spending the holidays apart, and the need to make the one gift the soldiers could receive on the front lines every Christmas all that much more significant. With Union Cheer operating the biggest toy manufacturing plant in the nation, Santa Claus, Indiana was poised to make an allegorical killing. Production continued to ramp up, with profits close behind them. An eggnog reactor and bottling line was constructed with this windfall, as well as the purchase of asbestos-lined elf outfits for the workforce. 
The money wasn't just going to expanding the facility, however, as Cornelius Cain siphoned off more and more resources to what he deemed special projects. One of these projects was the construction of a zeppelin outfitted with water tanks and flash freezers, which would sprinkle the town in artificially made snow throughout the year. Another was outfitting the homes in the management sector of the elves' quarters with plumbing that would allow hot cocoa to be pumped to the households and dispensed through a tap. Cornelius Bolo Kane was closest as he would ever become to making his utopian vision reality. But the rose-tinted glasses would finally show cracks when the unthinkable came down the chimney, the Selective Service Act. Dear Father, I have just arrived at the front line and already my heart aches for the soot-lined cobbles of home. The jolliness of the season we so cherish is far from these blasted and miasma-choked trenches, and one scarcely need wonder why. Earlier today I was in the canteen, and seeking to raise morale in the manner we are so familiar with, began singing a jaunty Christmas tune, hoping that it may introduce a jolt of cheer to the wretched assembly. Unfortunately, and if it were a deep-seated instinct, the soldiers around me began pelting me with their silverware and assorted sundries, demanding that I stop in their words, that horrid racket. I must confess that this response was too much for me, and I had to retire to my bunk, weeping to see such a downtrodden and miserable collection of men. I miss you and little brother Leslie greatly, and do hope this war finishes by the coming Christmas, as was promised. Until then, I will continue writing home. Sincerely, Jebediah Kane, August 6th, 1918. While this prediction would end up coming true, Jebediah Kane wouldn't live to see it. Two weeks after this letter was sent, Jebediah Kane, oldest son of Cornelius, would die in the Third Battle of Picardy. It would be recorded as the result of a gas attack, but thanks to recent discoveries by historians, we can now reveal it to be an act of friendly fire. In this never-before-heard excerpt from a letter written home by an anonymous American machine gunner, a confession emerges. I heard the whistle. The men rushed out of the trenches and into no man's land. The smoke was thick from the artillery, and I could scarcely see three feet in front of me. I just started blasting, attempting to lay down enough cover and fire to put the Huns on the back foot. I saw a flash of red, trained my sights on it, assuming it was a German flag. After I let loose a barrage, to my horror, I saw one of our own crumple to the muddy ground. The damned fool had worn a Santa hat to the charge. He never stood a chance. When the news reached Cornelius Kane that his oldest son had perished, his long-declining mental state finally snapped. No longer willing to respond to his name, he insisted that he was the real Santa Claus, even refusing to remove the suit to have it cleaned. Eventually, he would no longer leave his study and had food, always cookies and milk, brought to him by his waitstaff. Finally, on one cold December night in 1919, he passed, leaving the family fortune and control of Union cheer to the now 21-year-old Leslie Kane.
with the passing of Cornelius Kane, so passed the dream of a perfect holiday community. The young Leslie Kane, embittered by the rat race of local politics and the loss of his father and brother, had a far different vision for Santa Claus, Indiana. While the Union Cheer Factory would remain, in part, a tourist attraction, manufacturing became the obvious focus of Leslie. In a series of increasingly unpopular decisions to cut costs and raise profits, he quickly eroded the goodwill of the community and set the stage for the tragedy that would follow. First, in 1921, laborers were moved from the simple but now decaying cottages in the elves' quarters to a series of multi-story tenement buildings nicknamed Coal Town. Then in 1923, after a Hellmouth-style popcorn popper violently ruptured, incinerating 20 workers and injuring another 46, Leslie refused to acquiesce to demands that the heavy asbestos-lined Personal Protective Elf Outfits, or PPEO, be updated, stating instead, The work uniforms we have provided to those working on the factory floor are more than sufficient. If they feel not suitably protected from the flames of their livelihood, they have all rights to repair and alter their uniforms as they see fit. The stores in our fair town have been given stocks of repair kits and bales of asbestos available for purchase to those who desire it. I will say, however, that our uniforms are so sturdy as to deflect a bullet if properly cared for, and those who doubt this are welcome to have this demonstrated by my own Smith & Wesson revolver. In another incident, three years later, the Workmas Express would derail after termites chewed through the all-wood chassis, plowing through the now largely abandoned workmen's cottages. The train, long since being run at overcapacity as the workforce ballooned, quickly caught fire. 35 people died and another 67 were injured, many of whom never returned to work and were subsequently left go from the company and evicted from the union cheer-owned housing. Rather than replace the train with a more modern, metal-bodied construction, an even older prototype Workmas Express, made primarily out of cork, was brought out of storage and into service. As the years kept going, more and more incidents like this would occur. Equipment and facilities began to crumble. The long-term employees began either leaving their positions or were forced out after their injuries left them unable to work. Leslie Kane, seeing another way to reduce costs, brought in cheap immigrant labor to replace the formerly mid-to-high-paying skilled positions. Memo. Pursuant to the hiring policies, I would like to have the board investigate whether or not Italians might do well in our facility. I have heard from business associates in the city that if one can ignore their smell of garlic, these individuals are of stout, strong composure and are easily entertained with mulled wine and jaunty songs both of which we have much of. Additionally, being largely of the Catholic faith, they take the story of St. Nicholas quite seriously. I feel it might impact their work with a religious fever unique amongst the papists. True to this memo, by 1928, Leslie Kane had gone on to hire over 1,500 poorly educated Italians, bringing them to his facility by way of Chicago. Surprisingly, this was a hit among the remaining vacationeers who came to visit the Union Cheer Factory. By contemporary accounts, the rowdy, often wine-drunk and rosy-cheeked workers in their elf outfits were a delightful sight and led to a brief fad of referring to the Italian language as elves' tongue. Not surprising, however, was the wave of anti-Italian animus that sprung up amongst natives of the town. Many of the other workers, the bulk of whom were of families who had lived in Santa Claus their entire lives, 
felt as though Leslie Kane had betrayed the community that had long supported Union Cheer. Periodic outbursts of violence would occur between pro and anti-Italian gangs in the tenements, the streets, and the factory floor. In a particularly gruesome fight that took place in May of 1929, a visiting Bavarian tourist would recount. The family and I were on this lovely train ride over the stocking mill when, through the glass ceiling, I saw three men in their elf outfits having a rough house. At first it seemed like it was just harmless frolicking, as we had seen at the other stops of our tour. Then, little Hildegard let out a cry, and we saw that two of the little helpers were in fact attempting to push the third into some sort of loom. The train then sped around a corner, and I could not make out what happened to him. Still, I swear I heard a scream. Then, in October of the same year, the Great Depression would grind the gears of the economy to a halt. The effect on union cheer was nothing short of massive. So many people had lost their income that celebrating Christmas was no longer a given, but instead a rare luxury. Tourism subsequently reached an all-time low, and the amount of visitors to Santa Claus dwindled to a fraction of what they once were. Desperate to save what money he could, and quickly running out of options, Leslie Kane would make his least popular decision yet. To my loyal workforce, let it be known that starting from the posting of this memorandum, we will no longer be offering United States dollars to you as wages. In keeping with our desire to maintain your employment at Union Cheer, I have decided to begin a new means of compensation in the form of company credits that can be used at all facilities within the town of Santa Claus. While this is a decision we do not make lightly and understand any frustration that may result from the shift in your recompense, we intend to return to a dollar-based wage when the market recovers. We have awarded all workers with a 100 credit bonus for the inconvenience. The response from the workforce was explosive and near instantaneous. A riot broke out in the tenements, and police had to be brought in from neighboring counties to put down the violent mob. Factory floors ground to a halt as workers left their stations who joined the melee, vandalizing equipment and using their candy cane stripe wrenches to assault the police and one another. By the time the dust had settled, two were dead, twenty more were injured, and a strike that would persist until the last days of the factory commenced. Everything was in place for an imminent catastrophe, and imminentize it very soon would. Harold Gert, born September 3, 1927, is the last remaining survivor of the Santa Claus, Indiana disaster. Harold was five years old at the time of the incident and was the sole survivor of his family of seven. He was discovered in the recovery effort after being buried for several hours in a trough half a mile outside of the city, battered, bruised, but alive. Tonight, we are pleased to present, for the first time ever, an exclusive interview with Harold. He is kind enough to provide his first-hand account of that fateful Christmas day. Mr. Gert, what do you recall happening in 1932? Why, yes, I recall that day like it was only yesterday. Mind you, I was a youngin' with not too many years in my calendar, little wise in my way. In fact, my birthday had just come to pass a month or two beforehand. I had wanted a popcorn like my elder brother, but instead I believe I received a collection of beans, which was a bit of a disappointment, so my mood was sour. 
I recall us, my father and mother, stepping into the cobble streets, a sweet smell of lavender and turpentine wafting like Christmas ghosts through the air. It was snowing, and I stuck out my tongue and received several large flakes, which tasted of dairy and detergent. I could imagine myself living out the rest of my days there and very much believed that I would. You see, my family and I, including my three brothers and sister, moved around a lot in those days on account of my mother's constitution. My father would see to all of this although he was rarely around. In fact, I think I'd only seen him a few times a year at most. Now you must understand, my father waved with numbers. We were never really sure in what manner, and it was so long ago, but he was gone a great deal. I can hardly recall his face, but I believe he had even once met Herbert Hoover himself. Despite my lack of seeing my papa in my early days, I was just a happy young lad, most of the time. <laughs> this was around the time that Uncle Ernesto started coming around a lot more. This all occurred on the night of the tragedy. Oh my, I am getting carried away again. It's queer how the mind wanders. Anyways, I recall that it was briskly cold and my father was yelling. Yes, I recall it was cold. Oh, so cold that day. But I had the young man's bones back then and the young man's hair too. My hair was rather long, even at the age of five. The school children would tease me and call me Harry Lashes. I was the laughing stock of the schoolyard, and my mother would say... So tell us more about the incident. Ah, there I go again. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, boy. It was cold, but I also remember it being rather warm for this season. For well, that time of year in Indiana, at least. But I was only five, so I had not the point of reference, you see. I recall, upon our entrance into the wonderful village, Santa Claus himself, larger than life, flew in from the sky with seven magical reindeer leading his way, no doubt by means of a hot air contraption, but at the time I viewed it as pure Christmas magic. He touched down right in our path, trailed his massive body, and whisked me up in his kind arms, 
placing me upon the back of a most confident and powerful reindeer. I knew this must be the leader of the troop. I asked, Magical reindeer, might you be Prancer, of whom I've heard so many tales? But of course, with the voice of a child, not this voice you're hearing now, then the most amazing thing happened. The reindeer actually spoke to me and told me, No, I am Gabriel, a prophet and messenger from the Lord. He asked my name, and I told him I was Harry Luscious, and then he responded, in plainest English. Well, Harry, today is the day your parents answer for their sins. Do you understand? I didn't know what to make of it. It was the most peculiar thing. But I nodded my head, although I hadn't a clue. It was so odd, not the animal speaking itself, as I had been hearing animals speaking for some time. Back in my time, that wasn't too uncommon mine, but one directly to me. This was brand new and felt miraculous. And that's what you remember. Hmm. Well, shortly afterwards, I recall the steam bellowing out of the large gingerbread houses, lined with what appeared to be apparatuses of candy lovers and gears. I recall the elves, in their heavy felt suits and red faces, rushing around with their peppermint wrenches and hammers the length of a human arm. I remember them yelling something in the musical elf tongue at my father, who of course had to be restrained. Then of course the bells and the hymns and the whistles and the carols and the machines. All these things joining together in a jolly chorus of Christmas cheer. And in my excitement, I must have drifted asleep. When I awoke, I was surrounded by light and heat, and the smell, oh, like nothing I'd ever smelled before, caramel and sulfur. Before I could comprehend my situation, I saw before me none other than Gabriel, the reindeer who lifted me in his teeth by my trousers and whisked me away to a snowbank in a distant galaxy where Uncle Ernesto was waiting for me, dressed as a frog on a lily pad. Thank you very much, Mr. Gert. So what 
actually happened that cold evening almost a century ago. Historical records and eyewitness testimony have given us the ground-level view of the carnal house of horrors that unraveled itself. But what was the true cause of this cataclysm? As with any industrial incident of this scale, the answer is not one individual things, but a confluence of missed opportunities, ignored warnings, and poor factory layout. For our story, however, let us start at the first station to experience catastrophic failure, the 400,000-gallon caramel crucible. This device, kept at 375 degrees Fahrenheit and at a pressure of 120 pounds per square inch, was on the best of days prone to overfilling and violent depressurization. In what such incident, occurring just two months prior to the deadly series of events to follow, the supervisor wrote, Incident Report, October 13th, 1932. Giuseppe left the tasting port open as we fired up the furnace and got a thick glob of product lodged in his helmet. Screamed like the Dickens, but he could still stand and see, so we put him back to work. Made a note in his personnel file that he's a Nancy boy to get someone with some chest hair to replace him at his station, ASAP. Based on our recent analysis, such events could have been prevented with simple safety equipment such as pressure relief valves or pneumatic interlocks. Yet, the answer from management was to instead to rework the asbestos-lined PPEO, or Personal Protective Elf Outfits, to cheaper but more fire-resistant waxed and shellac-reinforced PPSS, or Personal Protective Santa Suits. These brought their own problems, with the mitten-like gloves making operation of the myriad valves and levers on the unit itself quite difficult. Compounding this, the poorly vented caramel crucible room would often reach temperatures in excess of 120 degrees Fahrenheit, leading to many workers to faint inside their sweltering Santa suits. Once again, rather than address the issue properly, the cheapest decision was made. The ceiling was to be removed allowing the room to be open air with only a small awning constructed to prevent rain and snow from entering the crucible itself. While the device itself was largely protected, the actual factory floor where workers manned their stations would often be coated in a thick slush of melting snow, especially during the winter months. On the Christmas Eve of 1932, record snowfall had rendered the workspace nigh unnavigable. Nevertheless, work hummed on as best it could until approximately 7.33 p.m. when a standard load-in, load-out procedure went haywire. In this procedure, hot finished caramel would be pumped out of the crucible to be replaced with raw sugar for the next batch. However, unbeknownst to the workers, an outlet valve had been stuck open by a hardened shard of caramel at the end of the load-out procedure. At 8.12, the loadout had been finished, and new sugar was being loaded into the crucible. Temperature and pressure was raised, and then a loud whistling noise was heard from the loadout valve. Workers quickly deduced that this valve had not been closed properly and rushed to manually tighten it. Due to the thick slush on the factory floor and the ineffective candy cane-shaped wrenches, workers struggled to complete the manual closure, and pressure continued to rise. Based on state-of-the-art simulations from Tech Brothers Disaster Labs, we believe these attempts were a frantic, terrifying moment for all those involved, though comical with the benefit of hindsight. Our readings indicate it be very reminiscent of a Three Stooges short film. Nevertheless, it quickly became apparent that the crucible was about to explode, and workers began hastily evacuating the premises. 
At 8.17, the crucible detonated, sending a tidal wave of half-molten sugar pouring out the doors and windows of the caramel processing building. Fortunately, an overflow containment trench had been dug in the years prior for exactly this situation. This trench would contain the molten death tide, preventing it from reaching other production units. Except it didn't. The trenches were filled with the shredded and compacted letters to that had poured into the facility for the season. Ever since the post office began forwarding such letters to Santa Claus, Indiana in 1917, each week leading to Christmas brought with it a flurry of correspondence from the young and the naive. Bolo Kane, during his tenure, took great pleasure in reading these letters from children, but his son Leslie had no such interest. From a journal loan to our team from the Kane estate, Every Yuletide season, I'm inundated with the desires of simpering boys and girls from all over our great nation, holding out greasy paws, demanding gifts as if entitled to such luxuries through nothing but dint of their age and ignorance. How my father could suffer such petulant whining is beyond me, and despite lobbying the Postal Service to end this sickening display, they continue to make their way to my desk. I have informed the board henceforth this detritus is to be incinerated, and that I am not to be brought any more demands by anyone who is not a scion or a senator. Whether or not incineration had truly begun will forever be lost to time, but it is confirmed that the vast backlog of these letters had essentially filled the caramel containment trench, allowing the molten sugar to proceed through the facility unhindered. Ultimately, it would flow directly into the candy cane milling workshop. There, a production line composed of drills, blades, and grinding stones would carve the confections out of solid blocks of raw material known as sweet marble. Workers were caught unaware, with many injured and killed as they were rapidly pulled under the quickly solidifying caramel. The motors of the production line itself would freeze in short order, milling machines straining to move while submerged in the viscous melange. By 8.33, the line had overheated. And by 8.40, a white-hot cane bender would violently ignite, wafting the ever-present sweet marble dust into the air. This would result in a second, much more violent detonation, which, according to our simulations, had the force of five kilotons of TNT, or one-third the force of nuclear weapon dropped on Hiroshima. The building was leveled by the blast, and the resulting shrapnel composed of fragments of tin structure and now shattered sweet marble reduced the still living workers in the building to what can only be described based on our simulations as a fine red mist. Even those not in the candy cane milling workshop were not safe as razor sharp candy cane fragments rained down from the sky causing over 77 injuries and 14 deaths. Those caught outside were sliced into pieces including several families of tourists enjoying the annual snowman building contest held just outside the milling facility. At 8.45, an alarm was finally sounded, and workers fled their posts, rushing to the Workmiss Express to return to their decrepit rooms in Coal Town, hoping to hunker down and let the company-owned emergency services put out the many fires. Safe and surrounded by their loved ones, they were calm knowing that the situation was under control and the disaster was far from their homes. Except the disaster was headed right for them. 
the same splinters of candy cane that had obliterated so many of the hapless workers had not just traveled horizontally or diagonally, but vertically, straight upwards into the union cheer dirigible that perpetually floated above the factory town, spewing fake snow in the summer and acting as a billboard in the winter. These splinters punctured the helium-filled balloon that kept the vehicle aloft, bringing it rapidly into a freefall. The airship violently collided with the overloaded Workness Express at 9.03 p.m. Though horrifyingly, the train was not derailed. Instead, it dragged the dirigible behind it as a burning wreckage, igniting both the train and the numerous buildings that ran within two feet of the route. Panic quickly set in among the evacuees on the Workness Express as the cork-constructed train cars began turning to ash around them. One worker, who was caught on the Workness Express but survived the event with burns to 95% of his body, described the scene on his hospital bed. Sadly, he would soon after pass from his injuries. By 9.34 p.m., the runaway Workmas Express would ignite well over 56% of the buildings in Santa Claus, Indiana. The last hope for the town weighed on the shoulders of the Union Cheer Fire Brigade, whose brave members quickly and chaotically began putting out as many fires as they could, saving many lives in the process. Except this brigade had been the victim of budget cuts and high turnover, much like the rest of the facility. Due to the ongoing strike, the previous fire marshal, with over 20 years of experience using the antiquated reindeer-drawn fire sleds, quit three days prior. His replacement was a one Marco Peroni, having no experience in animal handling or, in fact, the ability to read English. Still, he tried to lead his equally inexperienced emergency response team as best he could, though was quickly overwhelmed. The reindeer, frightened by the cacophony of collapsing buildings and the screams of the wounded, ran headlong into the waste eggnog lagoon, where they sunk quickly into the sticky mire and took with them the firefighting sleds. The fire continued to rage, engulfing more and more of the facility, while at the gates of the town, fire brigades from neighboring towns attempted to assist. But a barricade, constructed to prevent striking workers from entering the factory, had been locked close. Firefighters were left with nothing to do but look on in horror as Santa Claus, Indiana, was reduced to slag and embers. By the break of dawn on Christmas Day of 1932, the town was in ruins. Little remained of the utopian vision that Cornelius Bolo Kane had founded the town on, nor of the engine of industry that Leslie Kane had attempted to turn it into. The popcorn popper that Union Cheer made its fortune on had itself popped. The tinsel extruder had backfed and began smoldering leaving a thick cloud of smoke that would blanket the wreckage. Vats of dye for the holiday card printing press had burst, painting the mangled bodies of those who had huddled in the press for safety, gaudy reds and greens. Even the recently constructed menorah workshop was not spared and would go on to burn for eight days and eight nights before running out of fuel and sputtering out. Leslie Kane, scion of Union Cheer, wouldn't survive and his body would never be recovered. According to a surviving member of his waitstaff, he had refused to leave with the others as the fire approached his palatial estate. Looking out over the factory town, he simply watched through his window as his legacy turned to smoke, singing a lonely Christmas carol until he was overwhelmed. 
Two weeks later, the remaining fires burnt out and the smog cleared, and all that remained of Santa Claus, Indiana, the dreams that built it up, was a smoke-lipped stone statue of Santa Claus, the person, looking out over the wasteland as the proverbial Ozymandias. Nothing more than a monument to an empire now lost irrevocably to time. Santa Claus would remain largely uninhabitable for the next 20 years before, slowly but surely, tourism would return. The town, despite everything, still had a valuable namesake, and the land was dirt cheap. The memory of those harrowing events faded from this place long ago, save for the 40-ton Santa statue still visible from State Road 245. The holiday spirit does live on in this little slice of heaven, called the Holiday World and Surf and Safari combination theme and water park. Children can be heard shrieking with laughter as they jet down the 1,710-foot-long pro-slide hydromagnetic rocket water coaster known as the Wildebeest. Tots can be seen jumping for joy over the rolling waves at Tembo Tide's Tide Pool, and fatigued parents will always be found lounging their day away on the Bahari River. While Santa Claus, Indiana may never again reach the industrial heights it had in the early 20th century, the charm of this small community remains, where even today, a jolly old man that shares a striking resemblance to Bolo Cade himself can be found, reading stories and singing songs from St. Nick's gift shop all year round. Now, if you excuse me, the Rock the World concert over at the Who's Your Celebration Theater is just about to start. Good night and happy holidays. Oh my God, did you actually allow that to go to air? That was horrible. What the hell did you, what? What do you mean I'm the station manager? What do you mean the mic is on? This is on. Hey, whoa, whoa, what a show we had there, right? <laughs> huh? Yeah. I give up. Uh, stay tuned for something in Russian or Swazi. I don't, I don't know anymore.